Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shadow Eraser Poetry Hour. My name is Carla, and we are on Instagram at shadow underscore scribing. We also have our website, which is www.shadoweraserpoetry.com, where you can get updates on our episodes and bios on our upcoming guests, as well as a link to donate to our happy little project. If you feel so inclined, then please donate. And with that, I will turn this over to my wonderful co-host. You guys are stuck with us yet again. It is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's brilliant guest, the one, the only Ryan Daniel Warner. Now, Ryan here is the mastermind behind the RDW World Poetry Project. I gave an opportunity to have a wonderful platform for undiscovered poets and creative types on the Instagram community. He has one book published at the moment, the debut collection by RDW Book One, Poetry, Musings, Wordplay, as well as several others in the chamber, which we're excited about to talk about today or tonight, wherever it is that you're from. Ryan, good to have you, man. Thank you for having me. So, Ryan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us just the, uh, the elevator pitch of who you are what you work on and and what your plans are okay so i'm a poet and writer from the north of england i'm currently working on a fairly large novel around 500 pages which i aim to have completely in verse so it's a novel in verse i'm also working on several anthologies about the size of my debut book which is kind of chapbook length maybe a little bit more it's around about 70 pages long got a few of them on the go at the moment and also i'm working on the bigger novel i have done some collaborative projects in the past the rdw project that you mentioned was an initiative to bring together poets from all around the world of yeah of different places different strengths different starting out points that has run its course now that was roughly a two-year project it was a lot of fun it, it, it kind of run its course and i'm ready to to get back to doing what i love now which is is writing which i've been doing for years i'm sure like you two have as well it's something i'm fully focused on now so yeah that's me yeah you and i actually had an opportunity to meet one another during the rdw world uh, poetry project and being able to see you grow as a creative type over these last few years has been inspiring to be honest with you it's it's pretty awesome and it's kind of funny it's okay for creative types and writers in general to be selfish with their creative time absolutely okay with that. And I know, Ryan, you and I have had a couple of different conversations about almost the the guilt we can feel uh, when we're not giving other people the platform when we want to take that platform for ourselves. But I, I do have the great honor of having you being the first person who's ever published my work. So a personal thank you to you. I know you said that the project in itself has sort of run its course, but I did have a couple of questions about the project, if you don't mind digging into it a little bit deeper. Yeah, sure. So it's, for those of you who don't know, the RDW World Poetry Project was essentially books that, that Ryan would put together and publish, and it was a collaborative effort. People who would follow the page were oftentimes given prompts. Uh, we would write for those prompts. So those would be kind of collected into a tome and, and put out there for purchase, which is amazing, especially for a, an undiscovered. Where did the initial concept for this collaborative project come from? Did you see a, a space that needed to be filled? I've always liked the idea of prompts. Um, I think it's 
more common in the music industry for musicians to be less solitary than than writers. You have your regular jams, often in you know each other's garage, where you, you talk about music, you play music to each other, you work together. Writing itself is much more of a solitary business, which is powerful and brilliant because it allows us to dig into the core of ourselves and and write exactly from where we want to come from. Um, but there's no real community sense and it can become very isolating and lonely. So I just saw it as an, an opportunity to bring us together while we were simultaneously working on our independent writing and, you know, kind of share ideas, bounce off each other, much like musicians would during a jam, a jamming session. For me, a prompt, a, a prompt is a brilliant thing because it's amazing to see the different angles people will take with a prompt based on their own life experience, based on where they're coming from and just a single word or phrase can open up a wealth of ideas. Um, so that was initially the, the reasoning behind it. People had been doing uh, similar prompt challenges in the past and the contenders would get featured on people's pages. I kind of wanted to open it up to, to leaving it, uh, to having something a bit more cemented in terms of published anthologies where, you know, the work will stand the test of time. It's, it's a crying shame part of Instagram where we post our work and it disappears down the feed very, very quickly and it, it kind of gets lost. So yeah, to have it in a book, to have people's work in a book, it was just an idea I thought it might help us down the line to have our work brought together in such a way. Um, like I said, it was, it was an enjoyable process from start to finish, but it did kind of run its course. It became a little bit repetitive, but yeah, I did vary and deviate towards the end and came up with other ideas and more specific books like the Phoenix's project where the idea between uh, the idea of those books was a specific subset of people with relevant experience based on the book would then enter for those prompts but the initial poetry 365 uh, body of work was just a range of diverse prompts on anything and everything so yeah one thing that I genuinely appreciated about the, uh, and it's funny because RDW World broke me of my habit of staying away from prompts. Typically, I would, uh, I get tagged in, in so many every single day. And folks, I appreciate you thinking about me, but most of the prompts out there that I came across were like broken heart or falling leaf. And one thing that initially really attracted me to the project is you weren't coming out with the typical stuff. Uh, a lot of the prompts that you sort of stoked the fires of creativity with were different and unusual, unique. And, and that was definitely very, very attractive to me. So thank you for helping break me out of that shell. Yeah, I think um, there's, there's beauty and joy in the simplicity of just having prompts, which were just a random word or phrase that I found exciting, but also just very simple prompts like, a single word to give someone, the more they're able to, to run with it. A lot of prompts I'd seen were brilliant, beautiful phrases, which would have uh, fitted into the original prompt givers work themselves. So they were like maybe whole lines of a poem, which sounded brilliant. My issue with that was if a prompt, for example, is the faint smoke of a new day, if everybody's writing with that exact line, it, kind of takes away the originality from the original prompt giver. So the prompt giver has kind of lost that um, artistic copyright because everybody's now writing for it, where if I just gave a single word like mixtape or a random obscure prompt like roast beef, you, you know, you can take that and run with it. You can, you can take it black and white and write about a roast beef 
dinner or you can write about you know various metaphors and you know anything pertaining to how you want to to handle the prompt whether you want to come across as you know um express your deep creativity or whether you've got experience which you think will fit that phrase nicely so yeah i just wanted to kind of dumb it down but in a way make it more interesting via simplicity so well the concept certainly worked garla i feel like i'm i'm hogging ryan here i'm sorry i haven't given you a chance to ask any questions so i will relinquish my my soapbox for the moment and and pass the mic to you friend well thank you so much the beauty of this is the whole reason that adam and i ever knew each other was because of ryan ryan was good enough to read one of my poems on one of your lives and you were reading with adam and that's how i ended up connecting with adam and then you know, we, you know, developed a rapport from there. And I brought up the idea of the podcast. And I was like, you know, what do you think? He's like, well, I was hoping you would ask me to co-host. And I'm like, well, yeah, sure, if you want to. And, you know, so far, it's been a really good thing. But what I wanted to also, you know, cover with you, I understand from some of your personal experience, and just in reading your writing, because when when I did first start following your page, and read your work, I did go and order my copy of book one. And I understand that we both have special needs children and we both work in education. I have just recently left a job um, working with a young child with very complex needs. He was only four years old, but he had advanced autism. So that was a real eye-opener for me. I've left that job now purely because my full teacher training starts in September. This job ended in July and this training will take me to, you know, hopefully get a, a full position within the teaching establishment which is brilliant in many ways but also because it affords me the beauty of paid holidays which I can find even more time to to write which is yeah always a bonus yeah as someone who works in the education system as you know I'm in America we have this wonderful gift of having downtime it's not much because we do have an extended school year but you know it gives me time for things like this, you know, my pet projects, you know, working with Adam, you know, my own writing. Aside from your regular nine to five life, tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a poet. I've always loved words. I was quite a quiet child, I'd say, from the age of five up until probably 19. I've always been introverted and writing just allows you to to broadcast and showcase your thoughts and feelings, not just to others, but also to to yourself it's a great kind of self-therapy which you know we undertake daily as a daily practice it's just my way of expressing myself to the world as I grew older uh, went through different stages of my life and having read quite a lot as a child I fell in love with words themselves entered various poetry competitions in my youth and won uh, quite a few competitions here in the UK which I attended with my granddad who was a writer himself he was quite an established writer um so but because i had the the downside of anxiety or crippling shyness he used to come with me and bless him he used to read the my winning poem out on the stage I and mean, i used to go up uh yeah <laughs> head between my knees collect the prize and, and walk off the stage but I've, yeah i was always writing it just became a daily thing i enjoyed doing and it stuck with me with me since then uh, whenever I get thoughts in my head you know I have to turn them into into poetry or writing because 
otherwise it'll bug me if I let them go. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it was pretty much the same. You know, I started writing in school. I had had some of my pieces pu published in the high school literary magazine. Um, you know, I had my first piece published in an anthology at 20. And, you know, I had my ups and downs for anybody who listened to the first episode of our podcast where, where Adam and I gave, you know, an extensive history of our own background. Likewise with me too, a form of self-therapy and a way to express thoughts, ideas, observations that I really couldn't do in the mundane way or in just a normal way. It, there was just an added level of expressiveness that I needed to put with that and people enjoyed it. If you didn't mind, there was a part, one of your pieces that I wanted to read and just get some feedback from you on the inspiration from it, because this one actually made me cry. So this one is from book one. It's on page 47 and it is entitled, Who Will Carry My Torch When I'm Gone? Who will carry my torch when I'm gone? And who will harvest my bones? Will they eventually wear down and crumble after a thousand years? providing food for 31st century daffodils? Will I become those flowers? In a future where bees still dance and people still bumble and sacred ritual ceremonies uphold tradition, surely in one such setting of spirit and song, surrounded by wild birds and sun that scorches, somebody will notice my shining yellow flowers bursting through the stones. I will listen and be aware of their soulful renditions and belong to their words, knowing that every composition begins with a decomposition. I will bring them a shower of torches, and they will pick me and carry me home. There's no real reasoning behind, no deep reasoning behind my choice of writing it. Um, the first two phrases came up to me, it came to me when I was, when I was driving. At the time I was driving and there was a tractor cutting grass in the field, so they stuck with me. I had to pull over and write those two lines down. And when I came back, I just kind of meditated on it a little bit about how, you know, everything we write, everything we put out there starts with a kind of a decomposition of ourself, kind of a thorough analysis. And I've always been into spirituality. It's just for understanding the transience of life, the impermanence, um, but also potentially the eternal um, carrying on of ourselves that happens you know, after we've left mortal selves, the, the cycle of life, the recycling, um, again, in, you know, inspired by that, that farmer that I saw um, plowing the fields and the flowers continuing to grow. I mean, I just, yeah, just had fun with it in the end, just played with it, um, imagined a thousand years from now, will there still be some kind of vague trace of us? It's written with an element of hope, because I'd like to think there would be some kind of spiritual remnant or energy there after we've gone after a thousand years i wouldn't like to think that you know we just fade into complete nothingness um in a future where bees still dance and people still bumble you know i'd like to to think that we still have some kind of part to play so it, it was kind of a meditation on sacredness and spirituality and you know celtic ritual ceremonies that are held for that same purpose i'd love to point out the fact that you said there's nothing deep about it, and then you go on to speak about sacred rituals and <laughs> living on living on past our station. I, I was kind of grinning when Carla went to read that because I have that same exact poem in my book as well. That's that's one that I, I was going to either read or, or have Ryan read one of the two. I'm going to psychoanalyze you for just a second, Ryan, if that's all right. So your book, this entire collection, book one, 
very much a book about the concept of legacy in general. And that's just a piece that sort of highlights that, that concept. This book is full of musings on legacy and family and nature and how all of those intertwine together to make something that's bigger than the now. And I think, I think there is a pretty deep reason that piece was written friend. Maybe if you didn't necessarily see it originally, it's certainly there. Yeah. Many of the pieces I've written in this book, um, as is the case when we're putting a book together, especially our debut book, um, we can take one of two paths. We can either overly think exactly which pieces will go in, which pieces will fit, which pieces will gel. Sometimes we kind of surrender to, to intuition. And as I was putting this book together, I went through some of the pieces I'd written and added some new pieces to it. And it was more about feeling. It was more about which pieces I felt matched the whole theme of a book. And to this day, I don't really know what the full theme of a book is. Is thought it may come across as just a mismatch, an absolute jumble. But the more I've read, read through it, it does tie together nicely. Like you say, it's about the legacy. It's about a sense of place. It's about a sense of stillness. It's about a sense of self-awareness, thinking, realization, fear in parts, eternal. There's thoughts about. Eternal moments, there's thoughts about transience, there's thoughts about emerging. I, th I think sometimes the book teaches you more than more than you realise when you read it back. And you kind of learn a lot about yourself when you're just reading how pieces have been put together. Um, it teaches you that these things, you know, were important to me because these are the pieces that kind of stood out to me as I put them in and not because they're all um, amazing in poetic form, but just because we kind of linked together and flowed together. Nicely as well, we're telling some kind of fake story, uh, vague story about here and now, but also there's moments about saying goodbye to people, there's moments about moving on, letting go, absences, freedom from cages, um, getaways, security, solitarity, uh, solitary feelings and vision. So, yeah, it surprised me when I wrote it because I did just think it would just be a book that may be seen as a novelty, but there is kind of... Yeah, a sacredness to it, which I'm seeing more and more as I'm allowing myself to. Noticed of not necessarily a struggle with masculinity, but you asking yourself the question, what is it to be masculine, which I find really intriguing uh, because that's something that I struggle with myself. On page 55, there's a piece called We Move Towards Goodness. And there's a line here towards the beginning. I'll read the first two lines and then the third one, which is the one that I'm speaking about. Tell me, when you speak with flowers and worship the moon, do your emotions include a masculine push and pull of pride and revenge? Are you, like me, a destroyer? a lumberjack of sorts. When I, when I first started reading this, I was just like, Oh, did I write this? It, it's something that really speaks to me. Can, can you speak to that aspect of just sort of the search for the understanding of what it is to be masculine to you in your work? Yeah, I think as, as men and as women, we kind of analyze ourselves. Um, when we feel the pull of our masculinity or femininity. So, for me, being a man, it does kind of pull me towards pride, um, sometimes anger, sometimes hot-headedness, but also in a, in a big way, clumsiness. So a lot of times I feel quite primitive. And these were just vague musings on the various things 
I feel. So the first line, tell me when you speak with flowers and worship the moon. Um, that was kind of a, a hint at maybe men that write about who maybe romanticise or sentimentalise certain things. But I wanted to ask, do their emotions also include a masculine push and pull of pride and revenge, which perhaps for hiding in their work, I wanted to kind of dig deep into the thoughts I feel because it's all well and good me writing a beautiful poem about nature, but at the same time, I simultaneously see myself sometimes as a clumsy destroyer, a lumberjack, you know, a physical person that doesn't always get things right, um, has the best intentions, but sometimes I hamper myself by prescriptive decisions. And yeah, our poems don't always emit and shouldn't always emit flawless radiance. You know, we're only human and it, it was kind of more than anything um, a meditation on, but we are only only human we do make mistakes often but ultimately we do move towards goodness i think any any human being who really looks inside of themselves and truly meditates on what it is to be in this bizarre spinning ball in the middle of space understands that there needs to be a healthy mixture of both of those elements in inside of them and it's great that those questions are being asked in your work before we move on to your future projects is there a particular piece that you would like to read for us in your book one i'll just read this life is a rented washing machine piece it's not one of my longer pieces but again that came after a bit of bit of self-analyzing myself the cycles i go through the cycles i return to um and just a comparison to of a washing machine which is was in my kitchen at the time so it goes life is a rented washing machine you know every now and then we stop and get it fixed and on and on and on it seems to go every now and then you know our parents ask us how it is and we reply with bated breath it's going strong it's going strong still going strong and so it goes it cycles round cleaning orbiting repeating noisily in and out of repair and rehab but mainly working hand in hand with whatever we throw at it, be it sugar or sand. Every now and then it reminds us that it's finished, and we chuckle in the knowledge that there is plenty more to do. Reload, turn back on, and clean and spin and start anew. Life is a rented washing machine, you see. A daily spin each day for you, a daily spin each day for me. Absolutely adore that piece, and I, I love the fact that you specify that it's rented. <laughs> All of us are just camping here. Um, <laughs> this is... This, we are permanently temporary, which has started to become a, a new catchphrase of mine, but, but I adore this piece. What I also love about this too, and you know, just to kind of rewind a bit and talk about the previous uh, bit that you and Adam were discussing, it ties into this too, talking about you know our permanence or lack thereof. Um, you know, the only permanence we really have is legacy and how far down the line Will it go until our stories aren't told anymore? Then, of course, there are the daffodils, the things that we feed that live past us, hopefully, you know, in a thousand years. Um, but also, too, in the musings on the meanings of masculinity, what I like that is you talk about, even in your description, of the clumsiness to it. But speaking from the view of the fairer sex, so to speak, there's a beauty and a vulnerability in that clumsiness, I think, um, especially when it's owned in such a humble way, because I really think a hallmark of healthy masculinity is strength tempered with humility and the ability of being that destroyer, having that strength, that power, and yet using that with a sense of discernment and 
I, I really think you illustrated that beautifully. And then of course, talking about rented space and how we're all just kind of cycling through, cycling through, but also in that cycling, there are the highlights. There are things that we can look forward to or moments that we regret or moments that taught us something invaluable, you know, invaluable life lessons, even if they were painful. So I just, I love how in the mundane, and even when we were talking about the first, you know, when we were talking about who will carry my torch when I'm gone, I very much do the same thing. I'll see something as I'm driving or I'll have something happen during the course of my day that just gets my brain going and reflect on that and turn this into this, you know, much deeper concept. And I think as poets in general, you know, we have a tendency to do that, but I love watching the contrast between what will sometimes be a man's view of, you know, those mundane things and how that translates into your experience versus how a woman would view that, translate that. And I think in looking at those translations, talking, I don't think it's just healing for the poet themselves. I think it's a healing among people because I think we as creators and we as poets, by exposing those vulnerabilities, by exposing, you know, the soft underbelly, so to speak, we get to see each other in a different light, in a very real light that we may not always be able to do in our regular lives. Um, and I think for me, it's been good practice in sort of taking the armor off with the people that I'm even closer to, because I think in the, in the poetry or the writing community, at least what I've noticed is that sometimes it's easier to sort of display that to people that you really owe nothing to, you know, these are strangers, you'll pop up at a reading or, you know, post something on Instagram and you're just, your, your username and a bunch of hashtags underneath with some words like, you know, gives a shit, you know, what people have to say beyond that. But when it's the people that you live with every day, the people whose lives you affect and lives who directly affect yours, that's hard. I think that's the harder work is to sort of bear your soul to those people because you have to live with the results of that. You know, sometimes in certain cases, indefinitely, if we're talking about children, family members, significant others, you know, it's a whole new world. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of work about um, imperfections, perceived imperfections, um, whether that pertains purely to my masculinity or to my own sense of imperfect. I think that's what I try to get across as much as possible, because I think that's more important to me to, to kind of show to myself as much as it is what I need to work on to constantly strive for uh, for betterment, for fairness, um, for growth. I don't have many pieces that kind of villainize other people. I do prefer to, to kind of go inside myself, not villainize myself, but certainly explore my imperfections, my occasional inconsistencies. But ultimately, I think all the poems lead towards a sense of, of owning owning that, not attacking myself for feeling that, but acknowledging that imperfection and inconsistency part of who we are. It's part of our, you know, mortal poverty. So yeah, that's a big part between many of my pieces I write, I think. That's one thing that uh, just continues to impress me about your work is how raw and realized it is. It, on page 23, 
there's a piece called Goodbye, Dad, that that made me choke up a little bit when I first came across it. Do you mind if I give this one a read, and maybe you can kind of talk about it a little bit afterwards? So this is Goodbye, Dad. This morning, my tiny two-year-old called me Dad for the first time instead of Daddy. And I won't lie, it made me a little sad, perhaps a bit teary. Seconds before, we'd been out in the playground stroking the school cat with Scarlet shouting, Look, Daddy, look, Daddy, look where it's at. But before I knew, the teacher was telling her, Say goodbye to Dad. And that's when I heard my little Scarlet say, Bye, Dad, as the doors closed shut. And while at first it made me feel intrinsically sad, it also made me feel less like a crazy character, and perhaps for the first time ever, like an actual, real dad. Yeah, um, yeah, I remember this piece um, fairly well. It was obviously after I dropped my two-year-old off at nursery, and in the aftermath of coming out of the playground and going back to my car, I did shed a few tears because it was such a bizarre experience. But it, yeah, it, it was the way the teacher had, set, had told my daughter to say goodbye to dad. That phrase stuck with me. It was it just repeated, say goodbye to dad. But really it was like, say goodbye to to calling your dad daddy. And she still does from time to time. But yeah, from, from that moment on, more often than not, she would refer to me as dad. And at first, uh, when that first happens, it, it it hits harder than we we might admit to people. But also novelty of daddy of pet names. Um, when your child does start calling you dad rather than daddy or dada, it does make you feel like newly established as an actual dad. There's a lot of love and warmth behind when you hear the word dad as opposed to a pet name from your daughter. It kind of solidifies your position as a father, even though it's been two years at that point when it happened, it was kind of like having her as a child again. It was seeing her growth, um, seeing her go to school. It was all those feelings of how quickly we grow up. Yeah, it, it was It was a good piece to write. It was a necessary piece to write. I did write it actually in the car before setting off back home because I kind of needed to, to meditate on it to kind of make myself feel a bit better. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, give some kind of meaning meaning to it. And again, in, in this piece, I don't just explore the the heartfelt sad parts of, of losing that daddy name. I do also try and end on a, kind of like I'm ending a fable, you know, ending with an important message, which, you know, it's all right. It might make you feel intrinsically sad at first, but perhaps also it will, for the first time ever, make you actually feel like a real dad as well. I continue to really appreciate about your work is a lot of times when people think poetry, they think that, oh, this work has to be somehow connected to some grand life-changing event or horrible abuse or, you know, galaxy-exploding love. But poetry is in the day-to-day -day moments, and that's something that you do a really good job of embracing that I appreciate. It's a breath of fresh air because you don't see a lot of that. Here recently, some of my favorite poems have been, you know, just about walks with your kid or going to your favorite place or a particular smell. And, and I think pieces like this are just inherently more universal. They're more relatable. And 
the cool thing is, is you, you do it with craft and, and talent, which is much appreciated. A question about the formatting of the book. One thing that I really uh, love about book one is the fact that it's very much a coffee table book. And, and I mean that in a, a full compliment way. It's very catching. I love the fact that you've mixed in not just your your standard poetry pieces, but there's a significant amount of art and photography in this book as well. So can you explain to me the uh, the decision behind that? Have you always had a love for design and photography and art? Yeah, so I, I did study photography at, at uni when I went to university. I did major in photography um, when I worked for quite some time as a graphic designer. Um, I've always been interested in you know, creating things of, of beauty through various formats, through photography, through through design, you know, kind of presenting how we see the world in as many different formats as we can. Um, when I started on my photography course, um, there was around 100 students and the course tutor decided to set the syllabus based on the majority um, desire of what they wanted the course to be about so that's genre based so the majority of students in my case were fashion photography students who and because of that the, the whole course became curated to fashion photography which meant we had to spend a lot of time indoors in a studio um with lights you know lights camera action fakery to a point <laughs> um whereas my kind of ultimate desire as with poetry, as with writing, the main driving force behind any art is uh, the desire to observe and explain and explore. So my desire was to to do documentary photography, to do street photography. Unfortunately, I had to go with where the syllabus was taking us, which was um, fashion photography. And a lot of people enjoyed the fashion photography side of it. I kind of approached it from a sarcastic outsider. I saw the, the comedy value of these people spending hours putting makeup on just to take a photo. For me, I was taking photos of the people taking the photo to make kind of a, a commentary. And actually one of the assignments was we had to go and find a model and plan a shoot from start to finish. Um, and I took the kind of abstract idea, experimental idea of going into Preston city centre and talking to a well-known drug user on the streets, using them as my model to kind of make, you know, very important um, discussion on what we're doing. We're getting these models that wealthy first-class males and females that look absolutely beautiful. We're putting more makeup on them and taking photos for no apparent reason other than to have them to sell a product or idea or service. So I, I marched a person into the bright, flashy photography studio with my my university pass and I took various before pictures, drug adult face features. I had a photo story to go alongside it. I'd asked them about their life, their dreams, their ambitions, uh, their past. Um, so that was the before shoot. And then afterwards, dolled them up with all the finest makeup that the photography studio had to offer and put the, the after picture next to the before picture alongside the photo story. So it, it was kind of like a, <laughs> kicking the teeth to what the tutor wanted us to do but in my mind it was infinitely more important and I don't, I don't think I did particularly well in that assignment but that was purely because you know it was marked for 
kind of for, for, for wrong reasons in my mind it, it was marked on perfection on stylization whereas I'd, I'd been too experimental more of a you know a, a cocky photojournalist rather than a studio photographer that does what he's told and gets his $25 an hour um so um, that stayed with me um, my desire to create designs I, I did graphic design for a number of years and I did always train tongue-in-cheek designs even when I was working for clients to create things that would sell their restaurant or place of business I would have a a tongue-in-cheek motive behind it so that I could, you know, have something as well. Yeah, and j just with a little, in book one, you see a big poem. I mean, on the other previous page, it's a small micro-poem or quote or meditation. Um, and quite often I tried to match them up with a larger poem on the other page. So, for example, in the Goodbye Dad poem, which is page 23, um, the previous page is just a very short piece which just says it was summer but spring was clinging on for dear life and how the boy smiled because at least it meant he could still fly his kite. So again it was that, um, it was slightly sarcastic, it was a theme of saying goodbye to to your child, to summer, but how there's still something to be gained, something to be gleaned. Whenever we say goodbye to certain things there's always something new that we can gain from any any circumstance really. So I think part of me is still seeing the positive in situations. It's not seeing the, the person on the street as a lost cause. It's seeing them as a whole entire person with a whole entire story that's important to tell. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can certainly tell all of this bleeds into your design choices. I know you were kind of joking around about the concept that you, you studied with the, the fashion photography aspect of it, but damn, man, you're formatting. It, so, some of that symmetry rubbed off on you in, in a good way. And uh, it's, I, I want to put out this point real quick before I, I pass it over to my, my, my friend here. If I can't read your damn poem, it's not going to be impactful. So the silly fonts, the r ridiculous formatting, the, the unintelligible words over the artwork. It might look good and flashy in your eyes. But one thing that I love about this book is I never struggle to read the pieces. And that's so incredibly important. A lot of people don't even consider that aspect when they go to publish or when they want to do a creative project in general. It has to be consumable. And, and I mean that in the best way possible. Your eye for, for symmetry and, and design definitely shows through in your, your first book here. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of vetting as I was going through it um, because of, like you say, the big um, bright colored images behind the text. I wanted it to be seen because some of the short pieces, as short as we were, held um, held as much value as the bigger pieces, sometimes more value, and if not, we kind of juxtaposed the message in the following page. So again, I, I did kind of use my design skills as much as possible to put like, you know, white boxes behind the text to kind of make them sing and, and stand out. Yeah, but there is an element of sarcasm to it, but I, I, I think in my eyes I was trying to create like an image of these billboards we see that are trying to sell us the latest products or, for example, trying to showcase the latest fashion model I wanted to use that same concept but have something impactful on that designated billboard rather than you know just for latest accessory we have to buy I wanted it to kind of yeah and initially I did want to experiment with street poetry so I was going to print a load of billboard style pieces out and put them around um, 
the town centre, that idea kind of run its course, but that was something I had planned for a while as well. Definitely a cool concept for sure. Before we move on to your upcoming projects, which I'm genuinely excited about, hell of a cover. Carla, did you have any other questions for Ryan before we move on? In the story you were telling about the concept art and the structure and photography in your book, as somebody who's a 14-year recovering alcoholic and addict and trauma survivor, I want to say that I appreciate the idea of taking stories of people in those situations and making them something real and giving them, I guess you could say, the attention that they deserve, um, the humanity that they deserve. So thank you very much for that. Short of that, I, I yeah, I definitely want to jump into your future projects. I am working on a number of like I say, smaller anthologies, similar to the size of book one, maybe a little bit larger, probably in the same style, um, I'd say. There's around about 10 or 12 that I'm kind of wanting to, to get stuck into and put out there, all various themes. The larger book itself is called, it's a bit of a mouthful, it's called August Ilworth's Semi-Aquatic Mammal. Um, and that's going to be a 500 page, roughly, um, novel. Um, I'm still working out whether to do it entirely in verse, whether to juxtapose verse with prose. And I am also writing a separate version in a Word document entirely in prose. That kind of allows me to to outline and sketch out the book as best as I can purely in prose so I can get the story down and get all the important aspects of the story before I forget them or before they slip away. And then towards the end, I can play around with um, putting it into verse form. The main concept of the book, I'd say, it links man to nature heavily. That's an entitled semi-aquatic mammal. It's kind of my pondering on the idea of it. Again, coming back to that clumsiness of not just men, but of humans, how we are as humans, semi-aquatic mammals in swim, but not too well. You know, you can take that metaphor and run with it really. Yeah, we're kind of like a fish out of water physically and in a lot of aspects of, of life. Uh, yeah, there's, there's so much in the book that I can't really explain it coherently. But it's it's with a central character, and the central character is essentially soul-searching inside himself. All the soul-searching takes place when he's in his bathroom, looking into a bathroom mirror. And it starts off with August Ilworth, the central character, being around the age of 10. And chapter 1 is when he's 10 to 15 years old. Chapter 2, 15 to 25 years old, right through until his untimely demise at the end of the book. And each chapter is based on that life, that uh, part of his life that he's at, and dives into what he might experience during those times. I'm quite introverted, so the main character is essentially based around me. It's a big part of the book is about escaping crowds and returning to our own sense of stillness, peace, you know, looking into the mirror. Um, so he looks into the mirror, he sees himself, he examines himself and when he looks into the mirror he's visited by a man with blue light who shines a light on the mirror and through the mirror there's a portal into a world where he can truly be wild, he can be more than just a semi-aquatic mammal, he can escape um, the world and escape into the wild. So there's various imagery of savannas, of the Serengeti, of various wildernesses around the world of Yellowstone Park. There's constant mention of all the semi-aquatic mammals that I've kind of studied for this book, of birds taking flight. So, yeah, I'm still trying to get my head around it myself, but that's what I'm working on 
in my spare time. And when my head's not into that, um, I'm working on my anthologies to put them to together. I love the fact that your book doesn't seem to have a lead character that is your atypical hero. We need more of that desperately, especially with like superhero fatigue in general. It's it's okay for the lead character to not be the hero because that's not necessarily real. I love the fact that you're choosing to be brave enough to to write about a character who isn't necessarily there to save the day. They're, they're just there to to understand what in the world is going on with themselves and in, in this crazy world that we're living in. That's so important. That's so important because we are so we're spoon fed from a very, very young age that the stories worth reading are about the knights in shining armor or the princesses. And let's face it, folks, we're not all knights and princesses and that's okay. We, we need more work like that. So I, I appreciate that very much. And just for reading the description that was post or that was put in under your Instagram uh, post with the cover, what I love is a novel in verse about wild freedom and crucifying limitations. And I love that word. I love those phrases, the coupling and the words. I just wild freedom and crucifying limitations that in and of itself just hooked me just reading that alone piqued my interest. So this is something that I'm very, very excited about. Yeah, um, I'm getting a lot of inspiration for it daily. Where I live, even where I worked, on the walk to work, because it only took me nine or ten minutes to walk to work, and you'd go through some really atmospheric places to get there, and you'd see the old train yard, you'd go through the old subway, and just the sights that you you see on the way and the people you meet and how everybody's so busy getting to where they need to be or where they're told they need to be. It's the kind of central premise of a book is about him stopping still, taking stock and just saying what what is going on. I remember recently, only a couple of months ago, as I was walking to work and I was fairly late, so I needed to be quite fast, I would have been late, but um, something strange happened. I was walking through the subway and there was a man there who was drinking and he was also injecting it, yeah after I'd walked because I didn't want to walk past him but <laughs> I was late for work everything in me wanted me to everything in me knew that you know the normal bigger picture thing to do was to just spend the day with him and you know talk to him stop there in the moment but we don't we have to we have to carry on we have to go to to work and it's that bizarre weirdness of life where we have to do certain things and in doing so we walk past you know all manner of people that kind of need our help that need a sense of bond a sense of friendship a sense of camaraderie and everything else can seem so trivial so the central character is diving into the triviality of life um the things that you know people are doing and how we're not stopping or taking stock as much as we can we just we're we're carrying on. So at night time recently, me and Emma, my partner, have got quite a good system where every second night at 9pm, I just take off in the car on a late night drive and I'll be out for about maybe three hours. I'll just drive and, you know, observe to kind of fuel my work for the anthologies and also for this book in particular. Drive past various settings and various people and every single time I've got I've had like an amazing experience which could feed into the book so well. 
um, or drive through the town centre where people are, are partying, are, you know, are drunk, have had too much to drink. The word that springs to mind is just crowds. They're always, always in crowds. It's, it's kind of like the world that people think we always, always need somebody, or, or rather we always need to be in a crowd or part of a crowd. And the book's kind of turning away from that and it's his realisation that you don't need to be part of a massive a massive crowd often you need to come inward take stock you know find out who really needs your help who, who your friends are the important things in life and yeah so I start off driving around the town centre I see the busyness the kind of carnival of noise atmosphere um, when I'll drive to a more peaceful serene place or a dark place or some mirrors where the moon's shining and that'll just help me take stock much like the central character about 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 the situations and it won't be like biting sarcasm and resentment towards those characters it'll be more like a kind of like an inner sadness about the sense of humanity as a whole how it's kind of shifted Um, and that's why he of a man with blue light encourages him to visit the wild more often to see what the animals are doing in contrast to to the humans absolutely i absolutely adore the concept and it really speaks to me your story here about going to work and, and seeing the man on on the side of your path there drinking and injecting really it, it speaks to me a lot just because of my past experiences and a long time ago i kind of came to the realization that every single day is the worst day of someone's life the only thing that we can do is try and make our own lives a little bit better and there's definitely that struggle there between wanting to help everyone and also realizing that if you do that there's no way in the world that you can possibly make yourself somewhat stable. So I'm, I'm really, really excited to see a book from this character's point of view, because I think it's something that's definitely going to speak to all of us. I know we're, we're running short on time here. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. It's, it's been a treat. Could you do us and our listeners a favor again, introduce yourself and let folks know where you can be found and what you have available uh, right now for purchase. Okay, yeah. So I'm Ryan Daniel Warner. My username or place to find me is on Instagram at Ryan Daniel Warner. I'm a poet from the north of England, um, a poet and writer. I've currently got one debut book out, simply or ironically called Book One, um, which is a collection of poetry, musings, wordplay, and various artwork as well. Um, I'm working on several other anthologies at the moment and a novel called August Illworth, Semi-Aquatic Mammal, which is intended to be roughly a 500-page novel in verse about freedom, metamorphosis, crucifying limitations, an escape and return to the wild, a discussion on society and humans as a whole. And I think it will really resonate most of all with introverted people like myself. For the Shadow Eraser Poetry Hour, it's been our absolute Pleasure. I'm so glad that we're back. My name's Adam Chamey, and I can be found at underscore no underscore eraser underscore. I swear I'll get rid of the underscores one day. Thank you again, Ryan, for joining us.